Morning, everyone. Uh, we are in the book of Judges, chapter 11 this morning, and we're going to look at the very first part of that chapter, uh, specifically verses 1 through 28. And I will give you a sneak peek into next week's sermon first. In the last part of chapter 11 of Judges, it is probably, for me, by far, the most complicated, difficult part of verses that I ever encounter in the Old Testament. So that's just a little plug for next week. But next week, it's, it's, it's um, I almost want to get there now, but we have the first part of the chapter to make sense of next week's sermon. But next week, it is um, an incredibly difficult part of Scripture for me to particularly understand. Um, but it's all predicated upon what's happening in this first section of verses 1 through 28. Now, in, in setting the stage for these first few verses, um, the world itself really divides people. It really is good at dividing and categorizing types and different types of people. One of the most frustrating things that happens every 10 years is the census. Now, it's a good thing, it's a necessary thing, we need to do it, it's part of our way of life, it helps us. But it frustrates me to no end that they categorize and divide people so much. God divides us in a much different way than the world divides us. He defines us much differently than the world defines us. Totally different categories. He considers all of us one race, human. And yet, on every form you fill out, whether it's a doctor's, a DMV, or, or whatever, then census, you almost have to put down your specific DNA family heritage to the country of origin uh, and what century they came over. It really is incredibly more divisive and categorizing than God views us. And in fact, you can see this division is not just a census thing or a form thing, but you go into any school cafeteria in a normal world, and you will see the tables and kids naturally dividing themselves, don't they? One table is where all the jocks sit. The other table is maybe where the, the chess club sits. The other table is where all the theater people sit. The next table is where all the... Um, cheerleaders sit. And then you have the outcasts, and they're kind of splattered about, and then they eventually get together, and that becomes the nerd table. And you've got all these different types of divisions that we put ourselves in, and we even are guilty of that as we look out into the world, because we look at someone and we go, eh, they're not like me. They're wearing a Raiders shirt. No, not going to handle that. Not going to deal with that. Going to keep them at arm's length. Where's my Bronco fans? And But we naturally divide among gender, we divide among race, the way we define race or the world defines race, and we divide on all these social economic things. We go through a neighborhood that makes us feel uncomfortable, and we lock the door. We divide constantly, and we make horrible assumptions about people because of those divisions that we create and that the world definitely creates around us. But God doesn't view us like that, doesn't view the world like that. In fact, if Hard-pressed, God really shows us two categories of people in the world. Two categories of people. Do you know what those two categories are? And I'm not looking for you to raise your hand and answer it. Two categories of people. There's only two. His people and the others. And however you want to define that, the followers of Satan, the people of the world, those that are... Uh, <laughs> 
on the wrong side of God's eternal glory? Those that live for themselves, live for the world, live for pleasure, those that set their own rules, their own standards, and God's family. That's the only two divisions that God ever makes about people. In fact, he says more than once, when he views us in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, male or female, free or slave. When he views our value and worth, he views us as all redeemed by Christ. What's even worse is that we often view ourselves differently than God views us. Now, we can be very harsh on ourselves and beat ourselves and think of ourselves as, uh, as horrid, wretched, worthless individuals. Or we have the possibility of feeling that we are the best that ever lived. I should be king or queen, not just of the world, but of the entire universe. Yeah. And so we can have a very skewed view of ourselves. God views us all the same. You're a sinner. You're in need of salvation. I'm offering it. Do you want it? And then based on that choice that we make, we either enter into his eternal kingdom of glory or we hold on to the stubbornness of pride and arrogance and try to make it through the world ourselves on our own terms, our own rules, and our own truth. And that falls to the side of great disaster. The book of Judges chapter 11 paints a really strange picture about judging and division at the very beginning. If you remember back in chapter 10, Israel was headlong in rebellious idolatry. They go to God and say, God, we're miserable. It's been years and years and years of misery. Save us. And God's answer was what? No. I'm not going to save you. You made your bed, you lie in it, type of attitude. And they did the right thing. Instead of just using words of, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, save us, they actually changed their life. They changed the way they lived, they changed the way they worshipped, they got rid of the idols, and they started walking faithfully with God, and God looked at that and said, I have compassion on you. It's not just words, but your actions now demonstrate a broken and contrite heart. Of course, I will save you. Chapter 11 shows us how he's going to save them. He raises up a very unique individual who the world at first totally rejected. First three verses of chapter 11 of Judges. Now Jepheth, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jepheth. And Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jepheth out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jepheth fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jepheth and went out with him. What did Jepheth do? What was he at fault for? Jepheth. What was he at fault for? You'd have to say nothing. Did he have any decision-making process in being born? No. 
Did he choose who to be born from? No. Did he arrange the circumstances of his birth and his parents? No. But his family sure made sure that when push came to shove and all of a sudden money was involved, inheritance was involved, why will we let this son of a prostitute have any part in our family? And they got rid of him. They divided. Now, it's interesting enough through the entire story of Jephthah, they never go to their father and say, Dad, you did something wrong. Dad, you're wrong. Dad, you need to repent. Dad, why don't you rectify this and make it right? Dad, why don't you confess your sins? No. They took it out on Jephthah. Because he was the easy target, obviously. It wasn't Dad. Dad wasn't, Dad's the one holding the money, the inheritance. And so they kick him out. Worthless. Get rid of him. But the very first part of verse 1 tells us that he was a mighty warrior. This guy was renowned for his ability to fight, for his ability to stand against oppression and win. The guy was the one that you wanted in your corner when push came to shove. He was the guy you wanted to hold your back and lead you in battle. This guy, he was a man's man. He knew how to take on an enemy and win. You would think that his family, under the oppression of the Amorites, and the Amorites again are whom? They are descendants of Lot's relationship, incestuous relationship. Again, really bad storyline, but God can use really bad storylines in amazing ways when his grace and his miracles work in the person's life. But Jephthah's family would not allow that opportunity. They drove him out. So he heads up to a place called Tob, which um, from our perspective, remember if Calvary is Jerusalem and 25 is the Jordan River, Tob is way out, way east of the Army Depot. So it is like on the outskirts of the outskirts of Pueblo County, way out there. Uh, so it's far east, far north, no connection, no roads leading into town, and he surrounds himself with this amazing group of encouragers and this amazing group of just Bible scholars and lovers of God and devoted to all things righteous and holy and followers of Yahweh. It's a little odd, and I've tried to research this a little bit, but almost every translation defines this group of men completely different. Some translations describe them as scoundrels. Some translations just call them worthless. Some translations call them rebels. The very opposite of godly influences, they were that band of robbers, you might say, that you never wanted to cross. It's that group of individuals when you saw them riding their bikes down the road, you stopped and went the other way. Mighty warrior, a group of ruthless individuals living in the outskirts of society, what good could they possibly ever amount to? Society had discarded them and they just ran away, and they are now ruling in their own little kingdom of Tob. But verse 4 happens. And in the next section, we see a completely different change of attitude 
The people who once kicked Japheth out now are eating their words. In the following verses, we have, After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. Now, they were always in and out, and the Ammonites are on the far east side of town, headed towards the Jordan River. And so they're on the outskirts. Tob is way north of them and way east of them. But in, in between them are the Israelites. And the Israelites are getting pounded and pounded. So the Ammonites make war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jepheth from the land of Tob. And they said to Jepheth, Come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jepheth said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? You can see the irony here. Jepheth, mighty warrior, son of a prostitute, driven out of his homeland. His homeland comes under attack, and they go back to him and say, uh, we need the mighty warrior part of Jepheth. Can you come back and help? And his attitude is, much like God's attitude in chapter 10, early on in chapter 10, well, you know what? You seem to want to do everything by yourself. Go ahead and do it yourself. Why do you need me? But he continues, and the elders convince him in verse 8. The elders said to Jepheth, That is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And Jepheth said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. I will be in charge. I will be the governor, the mayor, the king, the senator, whatever you want to call it, I'm now in charge of the entire city. And the elders of Gilead said to Jepheth, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as we say. That's just a way, a phrase of saying, um, let it be so, and if it's any different, the Lord will exact vengeance upon us if we don't keep our word. So that's a mighty vow that they make. And then he says in verse 11, to end this section, So Jepheth went to the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jepheth spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Jepheth invokes God's name a couple times here. He starts out by saying, if this all happens, if I come back and you make me the leader, and if God gives me victory, if the Lord gives me victory, and he uses the covenantal name of God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he knows who he serves. He knows who Israel is supposed to serve. He knows the God of the universe, and he calls upon him and says, it's by his hand and only his hand that this victory is going to come. It's not because I'm a mighty warrior in verse 1. It's not because of my upbringing, an outcast, the son of a prostitute. It's not because of that. It's not because I have a band of rebel rousers. It's because of the Lord. Plain and simple. And he presses that city of Gilead to that point of accepting it's by God's hands or no one's going to get victory. And they see it and they agree to it. Regardless that he's a mighty warrior with ability or he has a really divisive past. God doesn't look to either of those things. He looks to the individual who says, will you follow me? Will you leave your nets and follow me? 
Will you give up your day and follow me? Will you give up your preferences and worship me? Will you give up your truth and exchange it for the truth? Will you give up the world's divisions and take me as your king? Will you give up every sense and goal of power and importance and accept me as more important than yourself? Jephthah, from a very early age, must have learned in his family that that was the right way of doing things. Acknowledging and following God. Even though his past would say he's justified of hating his brothers and never wanting to go back to that city again. Totally justified for the way they treated him, accused him, isolated him, ostracized him, made fun of him, and eventually kicked him out. He had every right to say, no, I'm not going to help you. He had every right to refuse even an audience with the elders of Gilead. But he knew something that the city had forgotten. That they're there to serve and worship God. And when they serve and worship God, God can do mighty things. He can make miracles happen. He can take a group of 300 men and defeat an army of 120,000. He had confidence in God every step of the way. And they agreed, we'll do exactly as you say. I know that it had to be a moment of incredible humility for, for those elders, for his sons, or for his brothers, to look him in the eye and say, help me. Have you ever had a situation like that, where you were kind of mean to someone, or you kind of put them at arm's length, or you kind of made fun of them only to realize that's who you need to help you? That's who you need to save you? Jephthah had the power that Joseph had at the end of Genesis. Remember what Joseph's brothers did to him? The favorite son? What did they do? They robbed him, beat him up, threw him in a pit, sold him into slavery into Egypt, and left him for dead and lied to the entire family about what happened to him. Joseph rises in power because he does what? Loves God, serves God, honors God, puts God above everything else. In fact, ends up in prison again because he will not compromise on truth. And God raises him to the second most powerful position in all of Egypt under the Pharaoh. Over every other Egyptian. And his brothers come starving begging, crawling on the ground, saying, help, help, help. And they don't recognize him. But he has incredible power. He has the power to save them or destroy them, to let them live or to execute them, to let them starve. And Joseph has compassion. And they don't even know who he is at first, the first meetings. And then reveals himself and just is overwhelmed with compassion and thanksgiving that God has reunited them in family. And I think Jephthah probably was thinking along the same ways. Because he knows God. He might have known the story of Joseph. Very likely he did. And realized he's in the same position that Joseph was. He can show compassion and mercy or he can use his position to get back at them. 
And oh, that is so tempting, is it not? To get back at people who have hurt you? To get back at people who have scorned you? To get back at people who have wronged you? And to hold it over them and to remind them ever, uh, every time you see them, remember you did this, remember you did this, remember you did this. And you just lord it over them. Joseph wouldn't. And Jephthah, a thousand years later, because he follows God, does the same thing. I'm not going to hold it over them. And he helps them. Then Jephthah. We're just going to look at verse uh, 12 right here. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me that you have come to me to fight against my land? From this verse to the end of, chapter, uh, to the end of verse 28, basically, and we're going to read this, but I'm going to give you a quick synopsis of it in maybe one minute. What Jephthah does from this point to verse 28 is he tells the king of the Ammonites a history lesson, a very important history lesson. He basically says, when we came out of Egypt, which would have been probably close to 400 years after this time, maybe around 450, because there's 400 years because there's the time of the wilderness there, so several hundred years, he gives them a history lesson and says, when my people came out of Egypt, and God gave us the promised land. We tried really hard to get to the promised land, but between the promised land and Egypt, there's a lot of desert. And in that desert, when we'd come to a city and a town, we'd ask permission, can we go through here? We're going to the Jordan River, we're gonna go into the promised land. And every time we came up to a civilization and a nation and a city and a king, we asked permission. Over a million Israelites asking permission, can we pass through? We won't do any harm. We'll leave you as you are. We won't take anything. No one will abuse you. We won't make moral against you. We just want peaceful passage. Will you give it to us? And every time Israel came to the land, the kings and the cities and the nations said, no, you can't go around us. Or you can't go through us. You have to go around us. And so they went to the next one. No, you have to go around us. You can't go through us. And then they go to the next one. You have to go around us. You can't go through us. And every time they approached the nations, the nations surrounding the, Israel, uh, the promised land, Israel, the nations surrounding it said, no, we will not let you pass through. And Jephthah finally says, in the end, and then we went into the land, and no one stopped us. And for 300 years, we have occupied the land. And not once in that 300 years have you come to us saying, hey, you know what, we want our land back. Can we have it back, please? Never once. But now you're starting to do it, so I'll tell you what. Let's settle this. My God against your God. Let's go for it. And that's where the chapter or the verses end in verse 28. So let's get there. That's the synopsis, the quick summary of it. This is the details of that history lesson. So basically, everything that happened towards the end of Deuteronomy and the book of Joshua is summarized here in these verses. Uh, then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Amorites and said, Ammonites and said, What do you have against me that you have come to me to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from Aran and Jacob, uh, Jacob and to the Jordan, and therefore restore it peaceably. So he goes back and says, You know, 
300 to 400 years ago, depending on the timeline, uh, you guys came in and took all that land. So I want it back. Okay? Uh, didn't take it from him, but took it from kings previous. And Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites, but when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Gadesh. Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they, also, and they sent also to the king of Moab, and he would not consent. So Israel remained in Kadesh, on the outskirts of the promised land. Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom to the land and the land of Moab and arrived at the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of Iran. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for Iran was the boundary of Moab. Israel then sent messengers to Shion, the king of the Amorites, king, uh, the king of Heshbon. And Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land to our country. But Shion did not trust Israel to pass through its territory. So Shion gathered all of its people together and encamped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. So real quick history lesson. Jephthah tells the king of the Ammonites, None of that that you say happened, happened. Here's the true facts from hundreds of years ago. We never crossed your borders once. We kept going around and around and around, and finally there was nowhere around to go, and the people of that land camped against us and made war. Verse 21, And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Shion and all his people into the hand of Israel, so they lost the battle, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. It was a war, and they lost, and Israel won. It was now their land. And they took possession, verse 22, of all the territory of the Amorites, and from Aran to the Jacob, from the wilderness to the Jordan. Then the Lord, the God of Israel, disposed the Amorites from before his people Israel. And are you to take possession of them? Again, the Lord, each and every time they entered into the promised land and made way for it, the inhabitants of the land that they wanted to pass through peaceably made war, and each time God gave them victory as his people. And Jephthah says, so you want to just kind of deal with this now? It wasn't even your land. None of it was your land. But somehow now you are laying claim to something that happened hundreds of years ago. And then he says, Will you not possess what Kamash your God gives you to possess? And all that the Lord our God has dispossessed before us, will he possess? Jephthah does a subtle, I'm calling you out. You and your God, you lay claim to our land. Okay. Do it. Come on. Let's fight. You and your God, what are you going to do against my God? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What are you possibly going to do? Of course, the answer from our perspective, knowing the rest of the story, is they're going to do nothing. <laughs> they're going to be defeated. But it's not Jephthah saying, I am a mighty warrior, come take me on. It's, what is your God going to do to mine? 
What is your dad going to do to my dad? My dad is bigger than yours. My dad can beat you up kind of mentality. But Jephthah is right. His God is indeed the only true God. There is no other God, and he's calling them out. Fine, the God of your valley that you worship, go for it. Let's really settle this once and for all. Even though it was settled hundreds of years ago, let's settle it again. Your God against my God. And see who comes out on end. And then whoever wins, wins. Will the story end? It actually in history doesn't. It's still going on to Israel this very day. And so, verse 25. Now are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, the king of Moab, which was the original king? Did he ever contend against Israel, or did he ever go to war with them? The answer is no, he was afraid to. While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages, and in Eror and its villages, and all the cities that are on the banks of Iran, 300 years, why did you not deliver them within that time? He says, you had ample time. We never made war against you once. And we've been here the whole time. Why now, all of a sudden, do you think it's your right to come in and take the land that we possess? And if you think it is your right, even though historically it is not, but let's say you think it's right, then it really is a story of our God versus your God. Plain and simple. Verse 27 and 28. I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he had sent to him. Jephthah is depending upon two things in this entire scenario. He's depending upon the truth and facts. This is exactly what happened. This is exactly what's true. This is really history. Not a revisionist history, but history. And I am relying upon God. You, the Ammonites, are relying upon what? Well, you have your God, and you have a revisionist history of thinking that this once was your land. It never was. The truth and standing upon God are our standards even to this very day. His truth and himself. There is a great connection that we have as God's people. Remember I said at the very beginning, the world creates divisions among people, categories for people, and and really forces that division upon people. God, on the other hand, says there is a unique relationship we have with him as his people. The only division there is. Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's Jephthah's position. Apart from God, he can do nothing. Apart from God, Israel can't win. Apart from God, Jephthah just remains in Tob, this remote little village with his band of merry men. That's all he is. But with God in Christ, in God's power and strength, He can stand up against a king of a nation and read him the riot act and read him the facts and truth and then stand upon confidence that God will will be the victor. What confidence Jephthah had. What assurance Jephthah had. What relationship Jephthah had with God. It was real. It was genuine. It was sincere. He knew exactly 
who he was standing for, standing with, and standing behind. God the Father, the covenantal God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All of this, as a take-home moment, gives us a real practical question or statement. And maybe some of you have made this statement in the past. Maybe some of you have identified with Jepheth in the first three verses, being an outcast. And you may be saying to yourself, how can I be good enough to be a Jepheth? How can I be good enough to stand up to a nation, to an army, to an invading army that has tremendous power in the world's eyes? How can I? I'm weak, I'm small, I'm insignificant, I'm an outcast, I'm dismissed. How can you possibly be a mighty warrior for God? Have you ever thought that? I know I have. We all have, if we're honest with ourselves. What can I possibly do for God? There are always people, bigger, stronger, smarter, better. Always people with more knowledge. Always people with a better ability to speak or sing or teach. Always people with more money to give, with more strength to serve, with more abilities to give. Always. And we can fall into that mindset, I can't do anything then, compared to so-and-so, so-and-so, and so-and-so. And we're making divisions, judgment calls, where God has said, if you're in me and I'm in you, there is a strength there that can fight nations with the smallest of abilities. God never overcomes our enemies with our great abilities, talents, skills, and knowledge. Never. He accomplishes it in spite of our lack of abilities, knowledge, strength, wisdom, and power. And he says, I want the weak things to confound the wise of this world. Because in the weakness, he is made strong. He is made focal. He is demonstrated to be our God. In Ephesians chapter 2, and this is where we end as the band comes up. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10, we have these encouraging words from Paul. For by grace you have been saved. Now this is his description of you. This is how God describes you. By grace you have been saved through faith. And it is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that anyone may boast. Your relationship with God is not because you are wise, smart, strong, good-looking, wealthy. It's not. It is because we are weak and in need and acknowledge our weakness and need. It is because we know that we are a sinner. It is because we know that without Christ there is no hope. Without the cross there is no salvation. Without Him there is no life. Without Him there is no victory. We acknowledge that. We know that. And we bow our knee to the world's divisions and say, it's all Christ. It's not about me or my greatness or my ability or how many likes and how many followers. It's how often I bend my knee and I acknowledge the work of the Savior on my behalf. And in that, there is great strength. You can stand up to the world's armies of unrighteousness with one word. Jesus, cross, faith, love, truth, hope, justice, peace, 
joy. And the world and all of its gods, all of its power, all of its scariness will disappear like, clean, like a cloud in Pueblo. Just disappears the next hour. Gone. Vanished. Not because we're that great, but because He is. The last part of that verse, verse 10, this is how God describes you. For you are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All He's asking us to do as His children, as His family, as part of the vine, as part of the theme of salvation in this world, is to stand and walk behind Him. And in doing so, God has said, as you walk behind My footsteps, you are destined, predestined for great things. Not monuments and statues from the world, but the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. That is our destiny. That is our future. That is our hope. So as we sing this next song, and please stand, I want us to sing. I want us to rejoice and worship and praise God as if it is that very moment that you enter into eternal glory and you say, Lord, I have been faithful. And he says, yes, you have, my son, my daughter, my child. Enter into your rest and enjoy the fruits of what my son did on your behalf.